Well, I guess as Vic shared with you all, I'm going on a disabled list here in a little bit of time, but I'm, I'm hoping to be ready for spring training. So this is my opportunity to wish you all a happy new year. And uh, what I'm trying to do, you know, I've lived with this hernia for about three years, and I have actually followed the doctor's instructions. He says, when it gets bad, come back and see me. They've been monitoring it, and then we schedule it. So I see the surgeon tomorrow morning, and depending on insurance and schedules and all of that, we'll schedule it, have no idea when that will be. And then hopefully I'll be batting cleanup in Spruce Creek's lineup again and going from there. But I want to share something as well. This week, Evie and I, having a little bit more time with the holidays and stuff like that, had the opportunity to see, finally, the movie War Room. And if you haven't seen War Room, I would highly, highly recommend it. And just kind of sharing, a, it's really a, a movie about the power of prayer. But secondly, it's about the movie of the power of prayer done in community. Because it is this older woman investing and really pouring her life in, really in a life-on-life fashion, into this younger woman. And I don't want to give spoilers. If you haven't seen it, that would not be good. But one of the things, I think there's a real lesson in terms of, I'm a human being, my own frailty, my own going through this, and that is we need each other. Vic, I need you, and I thank you for coming through. And I think there's something to, I know for my spiritual life, Admitting I need somebody is not an easy thing. I'm already kind of going, okay, I've got to repent of being weak and all that. And then I'm going, what do I teach week after week after week? You have to be weak. You have to need people. It's what it is in the body of Christ. So going through this is teaching me. You want to learn with me? We're all learning together. I guess this is what it means a little bit to be in this as the body of Christ. And so speaking of frailty... I'm preaching on a message this morning. If you have Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And we are finishing our series on the topic of Christmas hope. Romans 8 verse 24 talks about in this hope we were saved. And I wonder if we even, I'm going to read the whole passage in just a second. But I wonder if we even just recognize that we were saved for hope. Which means, and in fact when he says... uh, He talks about hope that is seen is not hope. So if we saw every fulfillment of our salvation now, perfection of our bodies, perfection of our souls, no battle with sin, we wouldn't, there'd be no need for each other, no need for grace, there'd be no need for hope. And I wonder sometimes if we don't limit the scope, the comprehensiveness, and the power of the gospel when we don't prioritize this topic of hope. We've been talking about hope, and we looked at it from the Old Testament and the fact that hope was promised. We looked how it's unfolded in history with the forerunner of hope in John the Baptist. We look at the announcement of hope where the angel, of, angel Gabriel came to the Virgin Mary and promised hope in the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We looked at the surprising, radical, revolutionary means of hope that once we were alienated from God, but now God has brought us by the body of Jesus Christ, suffered on the cross, has reconciled and brought us back. And this morning, we want to look at, as we close out this series, we want to look at the cosmic nature of hope. We want to look at just how comprehensive this is. So let's look together at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 27, that begins, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray. Father, we are dependent on your Spirit to take your word and to bless it to the hearts and lives of your people. For we resolve to preach and to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified and Christ risen to the glory of God the Father, in whose name we pray. Amen. What does this passage teach us about the nature of hope? What does it teach us concerning hope? We're going to look at it from three perspectives this morning. This passage will show us our need of hope. This passage will show, up, show us the comprehensive scope of our hope. And then lastly, the, the passage teaches us a couple of the ways that this nature and scope produces some fruit in our lives. What is the practical import, the practical application? In other words, what is the fruit of hope? The need of hope, the scope of hope, and the fruit of hope. I want you to notice a little bit the flow of this overall passage. I didn't print these words before, but earlier on in Romans chapter 8, Paul is talking, he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So this whole passage of Romans 8 is talking about how the spirit is the one who actualizes the love of Christ, the reality of Christ, experiencing Christ in our lives. Verse 16 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, so that there's a mystery here. There's a union going here. The Spirit is bearing witness with our very own spirit that we are what? That we are children of God. We're actually in his family. We belong to him, and he belongs to us. And then verse 17 says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And then there's this kind of, I'll call it a proviso. And we may not like the proviso, but it's there and we can't ignore it. It says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so Paul then moves, verse 18 begins, for I consider that the sufferings, he's building on the same theme, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. So Paul moves in this passage from the present ministry of the Spirit to the future glory of God's children. In fact, in verse 23, he says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits of a new creation. So if you notice, Paul is making this kind of change. He's the flow to the overall passage. What is prompting him to make this change in focus from the present ministry of the Spirit 
to the future glory of God's children. It's the practical concern of dealing with suffering. Talk to any non-believer. If you want to be winsome and be involved in the world and salt and light in the world, one of the most practical objections that people have in the world to Christianity is if God is so good and God is so powerful, why is there so much evil and justice in the world? Why is there so much suffering? Paul's argument in this entire passage is, if you think about it, he's saying one of the most practical hindrances to our experiencing Christ, our experience of being assured that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, is the reality of suffering. It is one of the most common questions. Maybe it's a common question in your own soul. Are you honest enough to look into your own soul and ask the question, why does God allow? Why does God, if we believe as we do in the sovereignty of God, he doesn't just allow, he ordains. And while that's true, that can make it even more troubling that he ordains the suffering in our life. He ends the previous section by saying, if we're God's children, then we're heirs. In other words, we're heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. He owns everything and we're in him. We own the world along with him in order that we also may share in his glory. So Paul alludes to the suffering and glory ending the previous section, and now suffering and glory become the theme that runs through the entire passage. And how does he address this practical issue? Why do we need hope? The first reason that Paul tells us is that suffering and glory are wedded together. They go together. They absolutely belong together. They cannot be divided. They cannot be divorced. They cannot be broken apart. And the theological reason behind this, the theological reason for this, is because suffering and glory are the two characteristics of the two basic ages or eons of world history. Reading the scriptures from a historical and theological point of view, frame of reference, it divides history into this age and the age to come. This age is characterized by suffering, by fallenness, by brokenness, by frailty, while the age to come is characterized by shalom, wellness, everything, integrity, everything being put together. So they are neatly summarized in these two terms, suffering and glory. And this includes not only the opposition, the hatred of the world, it also includes our human frailty. It includes our viruses and colds, our hernias, as well as our cancers and our heart disease and the injustice in the world and the sex trafficking and the racism and everything that we see going around us both our physical frailty and our spiritual and moral brokenness. It is comprehensive of everything that is considered in the reality of living in a fallen world. And why does Paul do doing this? Because he wants us to know that the one age outweighs the other. He's calling us to hope. And he's calling us. I think one of the things we need to resolve in our knowing, this is why I said our one resolution this year needs to be knowing the gospel in a deeper way. Because I think one of the things we do sometimes, not just we as a little, you know, Spruce Creek Church, but universal churches, I think we reduce and limit the gospel. 
One of the things Paul is doing is here, he's showing us the comprehensiveness of our need so he can show us the comprehensiveness of the glory of the gospel. Look with me at verse 18. And he's talking about our need of hope. And then he comes and he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present eon, this present age, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in other words, what is he saying here? He's saying that suffering and glory can be contrasted, but they can't be compared. And look at what he's doing. His statement, I consider, expresses a firm conviction reached by rational thought and insight on the basis of the gospel. He's looking at the hugeness, the bigness of the gospel. He's thinking it out. He's taking the time to reason it out, to process this out. This is why five-minute devotions and one hour in church is not enough, friends. When Vic prayed, seek his face, that seek his face continually. Because Paul is facing life, and he's facing life realistically, and he's thinking it out, and he's saying, okay, the present sufferings, I won't limit them. I won't deny them. I won't make them less than what they... You are here today, and we are part of the present fallen world, and that means we are in pain in some ways. We face vulnerability, temptation, sin in our own flesh, sin in the world, the attacks of the devil. But he's saying, if I process it out, I, I consider, I'm placing this as part of my faith, that the present sufferings, this present age, while it can be contrasted, it cannot be compared with the future glory, what characterizes the next age. What we're going to see is the scope of hope, the perfection at every level of, of experience. The eternal age of history. Suffering and glory might be inseparable, but they're not comparable. And why is this so practical? Why is Paul emphasizing this here? Remember, he's building a case, an argument showing how the Spirit helps us experience God. And suffering is a hindrance to our experience of the reality and the assurance of God's power, his love, his goodness, his greatness, his sovereignty, his majesty, his dominion. And Paul is building a case here, saying you need to be able to face the hardship, face the difficulties, and feel that everything you do is not meaningless, is not pointless. Tim Keller put it this way. Tim Keller writes, Paul wants us to know that the way you handle your present is completely determined by what you believe your future to be. Your prospects. Paul is showing you your prospects. Do you know that your prospects is that this present age, with all its hard work, rejection, vulnerability, is not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to you? Dr. Keller writes, a hope is a future prospect, a future reality, something so great and so good that it makes it possible to face the hardship, face the difficulties. It makes it possible to face the hardship and to feel that everything you do is meaningful. Is, again, the end of this passage, is actually working together for your good. And the good is defined as conforming you to the likeness God is using this present age 
so that you will reflect and you will mirror the image of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That as Christ incarnated God, the body of Christ incarnates Christ. And God is using all of these things to conform you to his personality. Do you see your need of hope? Next, look with me at the scope of hope. Let's look at how big this hope is. Look with me down at verse 20. Verse 20 says, for the creation, that means everything we see and we don't see, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Look at this with me. What is Paul doing? He's personifying the creation, much in the same way that we would personify nature. We saw this in our sermon series. We saw this. Remember back in Psalm 96 when we read, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound, and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant. In other words, let the creation throw a party because of the promise of hope because he's coming to judge the world. He's coming to set everything right. And here in Romans 8, Paul is wanting to stretch our imagination. Stretch. You want to talk about having the mind of Christ? Again, I think too often we limit the gospel. It's not less than, but it's way more than forgiveness and righteousness. Setting everything right means everything. Everything is everything. Every relationship, every injustice, every wrong. I've repeated this illustration. I'll repeat it again. And chances are, before the end of my tenure here, I'll repeat it a thousand more times. My favorite novel, The Lord of the Rings, you'll memorize it soon. When Sam Gamgee asks Gandalf the wizard, some of you saw this coming, didn't you? And he says, will everything sad become untrue? And Gandalf says, yes, everything sad will become untrue. See, look at the scope of hope. Paul is again taking up the theme of suffering and glory. Now he's applying it. This is why it's a cosmic hope, because he's applying it to the cosmos itself, showing us of the comprehensiveness of the hope we have in Christ. The first thing Paul says here is the creation was subjected to frustration. The word that's used here for frustration means emptiness, futility, transitoriness, purposelessness. The basic idea is of that of without purpose or emptiness. It's similar to the idea expressed throughout the book of Ecclesiastes when Ecclesiastes and the teachers always saying, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. One commentator said the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a commentator on this commentary on this verse out of Romans. Because the phrase is expressing the absolute existential absurdity of a life lived, what Ecclesiastes says, under the sun, outside a frame of reference of God and Christ. It's the futility of life separated from and alienated from God. And Paul is adding that if you look at this, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, the creation, when Adam and Eve fell, the creation didn't stand up and say, I'll take the curse for them. They didn't do it willingly, but it was part of the sovereignty of God. In other words, it was by the will of the one who subjected it to. 
This is speaking of the complete, what did Carl lead us in? This is my Father's world. God is the ruler yet. He is the one who in judgment subjected to the world to curse. But the last two verses that he uses here, he talks about it, say the verse, in hope, point to the fact that God entertained hope for the world he cursed. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Why is it growing, groaning? And are its groans meaningless? Absolutely not. They are the pains of childbirth, providing assurance of a coming emergence, not just of forgiveness, not just of reconciliation, but of an entire new world, new creation. I want you to know what Vic read out of Revelation 21 because this is the amazing end of history and your future hope. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Your future hope, heaven and earth united, brought together as one, and your future hope is as much physical as it is spiritual. It is everything brought together in perfect unity. And the creation right now is pregnant. This is the image that Paul is painting. It is groaning in the pains of childbirth until at the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, it can give birth to a new world order. The creation itself will be liberated. And liberated from what? The text tells us it's bondage to decay. Decay is its current state, which denotes what? A running down a nature enslaved in an unending cycle so that conception, birth, and growth are relentlessly followed by decline, decay, death, and decomposition. But in the end, it's freed from this cycle. This cycle, no matter what you're going through now, if you are a believer in Christ, whether it's for a day, a week, or even your whole life on this earth, it is temporary. The words, if you're in Christ, the words, this too will pass, are ultimately true. The creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth until it gives birth to a new creation and a new world. God's creation will share in the glory of God's children, John Stott wrote. Do you see the cosmic or comprehensive nature? How big is your gospel, friends? Do you maybe need to enlarge it a little bit when you read the scriptures? And lastly, what are some of the differences it can make in your life? Practical, let me just give you a couple of practical implications of this. Because I want you to notice, note the transition from verse 22 to 23, following through the text. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then it says, and not only the creation but we ourselves, the creation groans, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I want you to notice something here. We no longer live in Adam. We now live in Christ. We're no longer defined and ruled by the first creation but we live in the reality of the new creation. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he, right now, is a new creation. The old is gone, which means 
you've been severed from the principle of death. You still live in its presence, but you've, there's been a fundamental transformation, a fundamental severing with the old creation. The new has come. You have the first fruits of the Spirit, the first fruits of the new creation, a down payment, if you will, of the life to come. And Paul says we continue to groan inside ourselves as we wait. The Christian life now is characterized by this patient waiting and groaning. We have a present adoption, but we're waiting for the fullness of that adoption, the redemption of our bodies. This is our situation as Christians. This is the situation or dilemma we find ourselves in. There's a tension between what God has inaugurated and begun, first fruits, and what he will consummate and complete in our final adoption and redemption. This is what is meant by the phrase I use all the time, already and not yet. We have a foretaste of the life of, to come. And you live more powerfully in the not yet, the more you let your already, the scope of this hope, grow bigger and bigger in your life. The more the gospel becomes more comprehensive, the more you process out. For I consider the sufferings of the present time not worth comparing. The more you process that out. Remember what Tim Keller said. How you live in, in the present is determined by your future hope, your future prospects. So what are some of the differences this hope can make in our life? Let me just share with you a couple of them. First, it is truly a supernatural life. Notice it says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is a down payment, but he has come to you, friends, not as a visitor. He has not checked into the motel of the body of Christ, where he's going to check out from time to time. No, he is captured, he's put down his flag, and he's put up, up full-time residence, which means your life, 24-7, what you watch, what you read, what you do, everything. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do to the glory of God. The Spirit actually lives in us permanently, which means our lives ought to be characterized by a touch of heaven, a touch of supernaturalness, a touch of heaven in the way we love each other, Move towards each other. Enter into each other's lives. Live out. Incarnate Christ. Do you make it a goal and a vision to incarnate Christ to one another and to the world? Your life conformed. There's a reason Paul used the word body of Christ. Body is tangible and physical. Like the incarnation was tangible and physical. We are to incarnate Christ, not only to the world, but the way we enter into each other's lives. Is there a supernatural quality to our relationships? Do you just love one another according to your natural personality? So if you're gentle, you're gentle, and you're tough, you're tough? Or do you relate to each other in a way that would actually surprise you and everybody else around you? Because it doesn't come from you at all, it's supernatural. So if you're naturally tough, you become more and more compassionate because you have the spirit in you. And if you're naturally more warm and fuzzy and compassionate, you find yourself able to actually confront from time to time because there's a toughness to you. Is your life characterized by supernaturalness, something that's way beyond you? Second fruit, 
This ought to give us an authenticity to our lives. Why do we hide behind masks? I have to be honest, this is part of, this is why Vic, you know, found out 10 minutes before he came in that he was leading worship, because this was Jeff repenting of his needing to be in control all the time. I'm done with that. That could be dangerous. I may need you more and more. But I'm apt, there needs to be an authenticity to our lives, an authenticity to a gospel-centered church, a sense of us saying, I long for Christ, but I miss him all the time in my life. I don't always experience him. My not, life is not as pretty as it looks on the outside. Suffering stinks. I hate suffering. I hate the fact that my wife is sick all the time and can't make worship. I hate the fact that we need each other. I hate the fact that there's, but our sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. Is there a vulnerability? Is there an honesty to our lives that we share our pain, our fragileness, or are we always defensiveness? When Jesus met Mary and Martha after the death of Lazarus, knowing he was going to raise him from the dead, he is the resurrection and the life, he stopped and he wept. He paused to weep. I'm reading right now the sermons of Jonathan Edwards as part of my devotional life. And Jonathan Edwards ministered and preached in the time of the Great Awakening. And part of that Great Awakening, it was the itinerant evangelist came by the name of George Whitfield came and preached at Jonathan Edwards' congregation in Northampton. And one of the things that Whitfield noticed in, and recorded in his journals is how Jonathan Edwards wept at the preaching of Whitfield. It's not about my preaching. It's not, why do we not weep more at the word of God? Why do we not weep more at the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why do we not weep more at the fact that our sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. Christ is risen from the grave, trampling over death by death. Come awake. Come awake. Maybe if we're not weeping, there's too much deadness in our souls because we are afraid to face the pain and the absence of God. Maybe we need to be more vulnerable in our lives. And lastly, how do we actualize this prayer? Look with me at verse 26 and 27. Actually, verse 25, it says, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And how is this waiting with patience actualized? Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. There it is again, first of all. If you're not weak, you're not even open to the Spirit's help. You're too busy being strong. Doesn't say the Spirit helps us in our togetherness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I mentioned the movie War Room. Again, I don't want to give spoilers on it in case you're watching, but it's much more than just an entertaining movie. It really is a teaching movie. And one of the things that it taught me, I was really impressed by one of the things when this older woman is investing in the life of the younger woman and teaching her to, how to pray. She's talking about fighting in her marriage, and the older woman says, you need to learn how to fight correctly. You need to learn how to fight right. 
The Spirit teaches us in, our, in and through prayer, there's no other means, how to fight right. Sometimes we're too strong to know how to fight right. And what is fighting right? What, again, is the Spirit's function? I say this again all the time. The Spirit was given to bring glory to Jesus by taking from what is Jesus's and making it known to us. We need to fight, not for trying to eliminate our bad circumstances, but we need to fight for a more intimate, deep, powerful experience and seeking the face of Christ. Prioritizing what eternal life really is, knowing God and knowing Christ whom God has sent, incarnating Christ in our lives, being real and vulnerable before one another and before the world, being the real flesh and body and bones of Jesus Christ on the earth. The Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't even know how to pray. But he, will fight the f he fights the war for us. He fights the battle for us to get our gaze on Christ and to fall in love more deeply with Christ. That's what he's doing as we go to the Lord's Supper. That's what he wants to do in our lives. He wants to show you your need, to show you the scope to bear fruit of showing you Christ in your life. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is that you will use, as you've used your word, you will also use this sacrament to mediate the presence of Christ, to draw us to him, that we may feed off the real body and blood of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.